Hello and welcome to the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's podcast, we're honored to have Mark Cousin, CEO of A-Cubed. Welcome, Mark. Thanks. Great to be here. Oh, it's it's really exciting to have you. I've been looking forward to this conversation and to talk about all the wonderful innovations uh, A-Cube's been doing over the years. So super excited. Having been a part of the Airbus family since 1998, you've seen and experienced a lot of innovation firsthand. Over the years, what are some of the most important innovations you've seen in the aerospace industry as it relates especially to Airbus? Well, maybe I, I just to quickly start by saying I, I'm, you know, I'm an engineer at heart and I've been, I've been CEO of A-Cube since December 2018. And, and A-Cubed is Airbus's innovation center in the, in the Silicon Valley. And we're there because a few years ago we missed some, uh, we missed some things that happened in the valley. And, uh, we wanted to make sure that we were really up there with, with innovation in the, as, you know, relevant to our industry. Coming back to that question, what are the biggest innovations that I've seen in, in my career in, in aviation? I think the the most important innovations have been related to um, efficiency and safety. We've we've improved the efficiency of our products over the last 10 to 15 years by 2% per year on a passenger mile basis. So a modern aircraft like the A321neo is as efficient as in terms of um uh, grams per kilometer tra- traveled or, or, or whatever, whatever measure you use. It's, a, it's as efficient as the European Union requires cars to be in 2024. So it gives you an idea of how, how efficient aircraft have become these days. And technologies have come along, innovation has come along in, in lots of forms, but I think pro- probably the biggest ones that have affected safety would have been the introduction of uh, a fly-by-wire um, and two crew cockpits, um, which were both innovations per, by Airbus, introduced on the A300 and the, and the A320 uh, family of aircraft. And when these new technologies arrived, there's initially some skepticism, you know, some, res- some, some resistance, but they very quickly become uh, a normal part of the, uh, of the business. If I come to particularly to um, fly-by-wire and what we call the fourth generation of, of aircraft, that has contributed very significantly to the improvement in safety in the aviation business. And safety is really our, our number one priority and always always will be. This generation of aircraft is, is safer than the, the, than the generation that preceded it. And even along the way, we've continued to bring other innovations uh, for safety, like, for example, runway overrun protection system is something we introduced when we when we designed the A380. And it's a system that makes sure that the pilot doesn't run off the end of the runway. And it's actually very simple. It's a system that is calculating the energy that the aircraft has right from the point where the pilot can see the runway. So it's calculating the speed, the height, and, and, and just calculating whether it thinks the aircraft can stop. Uh, and if it doesn't think it can stop, it will tell the pilot, even be, well before he's landed, that the runway he's landing on is too short and that he should go around. So those are the sorts of innovations that, that for me, are the most important ones because they've um, they've, they've improved the safety of our industry and, uh, you know, other ones have improved the, uh, the efficiency and reduced the impact on the environment of the, of the industry. Is runway protection available on every commercial Airbus that passengers fly on today? Is that a standard feature? 
it's it's an option that's available on uh, on all of the aircraft that we yeah all of the aircraft that we sell today um, have, have that system of either a standard fit or as an option. And how did the fly-by-wire innovations come about? So fly-by-wire was really one of the the earliest innovations that Airbus brought to the to the industry, and it was really one of the the things that we did to differentiate ourselves from our competitors at the time, which were Boeing and McDonnell Douglas. So our very first aircraft that we developed, the A300 family, were, were conventional controlled aircraft. And the A320, which was introduced in the, um, in the 80s, was the first digital fly-by-wire aircraft in the world. It introduced lots of new features that provide additional protections and protect the, the pilot from, you know, from doing, doing things. For example, Unless you have a, a, a large number of failures, you cannot stall an A320. It won't let you. So, the, the, you know, the, those sort of things have, have ultimately brought very significant improvements to the uh, to the safety of the industry. That's incredible that you can't stall an A320. Somebody um, you know, post before and post COVID would fly all the time. That's something that that I never knew. So, thank you for for sharing that with the audience and. You mentioned the A320, but you were actually the technical director on the A330. Can you talk about some of those innovations on that? I was technical director on the uh, the A330-based Beluga XL, which is an outsized transport aircraft that we built for our own transport needs. And for that aircraft, we took a standard A330 as a, as a base, a standard A330 freighter, and we basically cut the top off the, the, the airplane and grafted on a huge upper upper bubble. You've probably seen uh, you've probably seen pictures of the aeroplanes, uh, pretty famous. And, and we built an aeroplane that's designed to transport fuselages and wings around amongst our our sites. It was a a huge challenge, partly because it was so so different from any other any other aircraft we do, but it was also a project which many people in the in the business thought was impossible. They didn't believe we could do it in the time and with the money that we had available. And so, you know, I'm not not new to to um, taking on challenging projects and trying to make the impossible possible. And we we succeeded. We did it. We we did the uh, we did it in two years from from start of design to big start of manufacturing. There are now three Belugas, three Beluga XLs, as we call them, flying in, in, in our fleet. And it was really a lot to do with the, the mindset of the team, you know, building the right team and, and having a, a mindset which was, you know, we, we, we can do this. We'll find a way. So it was a great project. It was, uh, it was um, uh, something that I, uh, that I enjoyed a lot and I learned a lot from. And so that entire team had that can-do attitude, we're going to do this, we're going to succeed from the, the entire team? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think the skepticism that came from the rest of Airbus, um, if you like, served as a, really as a motivating factor for us, us as a team to prove them wrong, you know, to prove that we could, we could design an aircraft that was, you know, that, that in, in two years. And um, we even managed to design an aircraft that has what we call a single type rating. So it, it, it has the same type rating as a standard A330. If you're qualified to fly an A330, you're qualified to fly the Beluga XL, even though they look completely different. 
Um, and again, this was one of the things that people told me as technical director, it won't be possible that the aircraft will fly too differently from the from the basic airplane. And in fact, with what we can do with fly-by-wire, um, we were able to make the airplanes handle so similarly that um, if you're qualified to fly one, you're automatically qualified to fly the other, which is a huge benefit for us in terms of training. And you did all this when you were living in in France full time before coming to Silicon Valley. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I was based in. I've been based in uh, in France in Toulouse since around the year two thousand. And France has come a long way in twenty sixteen with the with the introduction uh, via tech and all the stuff from LVMH. And there seems to be a big burning tech scene in France. And now with the Silver Lake investment that was announced today into the tech scene. What differences have you seen from going through all this incredible innovation in France to now being based in Silicon Valley as CEO of A-Cubed? Probably the biggest difference is there's a much stronger culture of risk-taking here in Silicon Valley. I think the main difference is, is, is the ability of, particularly of startup companies, to access venture capital that allows them to take on those 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 risky those difficult to solve problems and and it it's the it's the availability of the funding and i guess it's a sort of you know a snowball effect it's drawn it's drawn the people the innovators to the area because of the of the funding and that's drawn the funding to the area so i think that's the biggest difference i mean there are entrepreneurs all all over the world with the with the mindset that's needed but it, in the valley it's much easier to make um, you know, make it uh, make it a reality um, because of the access to funding, and also to to to, to talent to, to the type of people who who want to work in that type of environment. And Airbus has multiple global innovation centers around the globe with um, extreme, largely access to capital and access to talent. Is there anything in some of those global innovation hubs that you said this works really well here? Let's bring it to Silicon Valley as you continue to lead a cubed. We, we we recognize that Airbus doesn't have a monopoly on good ideas. Um, you know, good ideas come from all, all, all sorts of places. The reason we're in Silicon Valley is that we, we focus on the ecosystem in the valley and, and what it's good at. And the things we see are, you know, a real concentration of talent, in many cases, which has been built up due to synergies with other industries like, uh, for example, automotive. You know, what's, what's unique about the Valley is, is that, that, that we, we find really deep and, and talented people in, uh, in areas like, uh, for example, AI and machine learning. Um, that's, that's a particular strength of the, uh, the Silicon Valley at the moment. And that's been driven by the huge investment that automotive has made in trying to develop autonomous cars over the last uh, over the last five years. So that's what drew us to the to the valley, and that's what we try and leverage in, in in the valley. The other thing we find that is unique here is the ability to set up an organisation that moves fast and is able to be agile, you know, and challenge uh, and challenge and evolve. As uh, as things changed, you know, a cube has changed a lot over its five year existence, and that again is something which I think is is a, is a strong advantage in the valley. Obviously, the competition for talent is um, is pretty intense, but we've demonstrated that we're able to attract that, that talent and to accelerate the development of these new technologies for the aviation industry. 
Can you speak to some of the ways that A-Cube has changed over the last five years? A-Cube started out driven by some of the things that happened in what you might call the new space industry. So, you know, with SpaceX and companies like that, 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 that did things that we thought were, were impossible. It started out as a, as, as a disruptive innovation center. And over time, we've moved, uh, we've moved away from, uh, more away from some of the disruptive innovation, more towards targeted innovation, which contributes more, more directly to the, the corporate objectives of, of Airbus and the specific interests of Airbus. And for example, the recent crisis that we face, the COVID crisis that we face today is another example where of where we've had to adapt the resources that, that that Airbus is able to deploy on you know technology uh, and, and innovation um, and we've had to adapt our projects to support the goals of the company so you know the, the basic spirit has stayed the same but what we actually do has changed obviously some some projects we've, we've launched projects we've run them to a to, to a conclusion or we've some projects we've run and stopped because we saw they were you know not going to achieve uh, what we were what we were looking for so you know we've been involved in all sorts of things we've done everything from flying uh, flying taxis to um, blockchain projects and, um, and so on and our current focus is is very much now uh, around um, machine learning and artificial intelligence and there's a clear trend here that airbus and a cubed in general just constantly continue to innovate and there seems to be also a, a trend where Silicon Valley is changing. And I want to read you something that Mark Andreessen recently penned. Mark Andreessen recently penned, It's Time to Build, his opus which challenges entrepreneurs to build the future. In the essay, Mark states the following. Where are the supersonic aircraft? Where are the millions of delivery drones? Where are the high-speed trains, the soaring monorails, the hyperloops, and yes, the flying cars? Do you think Mark's call to move away from software to build will change the valley since he is that wrote the famous paper software is eating the world and now he's writing another one saying it's time to build and for although a lot long time there was venture capital decks software 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 do you think that we're going to see this movement towards build and will that have a positive impact on airbus and a cube since if the valley moves to building things i think silicon valley is has been quietly exploring what i would call new aerospace for for quite a few years now you know both both the large tech organizations and, and startups. So flying taxis are, are one of the most um, hyped subjects. And there are, there are several companies in the Valley uh, working on, on what we call in Airbus urban air mobility vehicles for a number of years. And uh, we, we were one of them. We ran for three and a half years a very successful program of Vahana flying taxi, which completed its final flight in, uh, in 2019, flying a fully autonomous 50-kilometer um, flight up in our test range in, in Pendleton. I, I think there's, there's already a lot of that going on in the valley. The other, the other activity that's, uh, that's also strong is delivery drones. I mean, the, the, there's, there, are, there are several companies in the, in the valley working on uh, delivery drones, and maybe with the COVID crisis, that's going to become uh, one of the new uh, the new boom industries where, you know, we want we want touchless delivery of our uh, of, of, of our goods. Um, so you know, maybe that'll be positive for things like that. And and we're we're also seeing we're also seeing in the valley uh, 
a focus on looking at building electric vehicles, so either VTOL, eVTOL vehicles, or now also electric aeroplanes, so small electric aeroplanes that will perhaps carry passengers for much shorter distances, but with uh, zero emissions. So I think the Valley is already doing some of that, and uh, we will certainly continue to do so. It's probably not the valley's probably not going to turn into a you know heavy manufacturing hub. Um, it's probably not well adapted to that type of uh, industry. The skill set of people in the area is more um, more adapted to uh, you know s- smaller vehicles maybe than, than you know. So I, d- I don't think we're going to start seeing uh, large commercial aircraft built in the valley. But uh, yeah. Do you think some of the design work that will be done in the valley, from the innovation engineering perspective, will be done there, and the manufacturing will be done in, say, France or other locations around the world? Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's certainly what we're we're trying to do. Is you know, we're trying to focus on leveraging the uh, the talent and technologies that, that that the valley is good at, and integrating those into into our products. Um, you know, which are perhaps produced, actually physically produced elsewhere. You're doing a really good job of that. In April 2020, Airbus successfully performed the first fully automatic vision-based takeoff and landing. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so that that was um, that was actually a project that um, that I launched just before I left Toulouse when I was uh, head of flight demonstrators. So it was called uh, Atoll Autonomous Taxi Takeoff and Landing. So the objective of that project was to develop the capability to perform a full flight of an aircraft, um, including the takeoff and landing, using vision, computer vision-based systems. So in, as you say, in April, we uh, we conducted the first complete flight where the, the aircraft, which was an A350-1000, so it's not a small aircraft, it's the second biggest aircraft we produce, performed a completely autonomous takeoff and, and landing using computer vision for the for, for the guidance of the of the aircraft the particular contribution of aq to that was the um, machine learning algorithms for the um, approach and landing phase so you know we 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 worked on uh, we worked on that with our with our colleagues in toulouse and integrated it in, into the flight control system of uh, an a350 aircraft and you know what we found was it's it's a really difficult problem but it's also a really interesting and really promising development for the future. Will we ever have a fully automated commercial flight that can take off from takeoff and landing without the interference of a pilot, fully fully autonomous? Yes, for sure. And I'm convinced that autonomy will ultimately improve improve the safety of commercial aviation whilst reducing costs uh, for airlines and addressing a looming pilot shortage, but the fact that a bit like fly-by-wire did in the 80s, the fact that ultimately autonomy will will be able to improve the, the safety of flight, I think will mean that ultimately we will see aircraft that perform their, their, their mission fully autonomously. And how do you build passenger trust? It's funny when you go on a commercial airliner today, say, oh, well, the, the plane mostly flies itself. No, it doesn't. Like, And, oh, okay, there's these weird... Like it just seems like the public doesn't really understand that. Do you think that the airline industry will will just continue to say go full autonomy, have the pilots there for safety, and not really address this, or will there be a big campaign? Do you think around safety and all the innovations and safety breakthroughs? 
it'll be something that will happen gradually. Um, I mentioned I mentioned earlier on one of the early innovations that Airbus um, introduced was the migration from the three crew cockpit to the two crew cockpit. So uh, that was done with the A300 when we went from three crew to only two crew on board. And we also at the same time went from having four engines to only two uh, for flying over the uh, over the over the oceans. So we'll have to convince we'll have to convince the, the traveling public that uh, the aircraft is still safe. I think in 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 our lifetime, we won't see pilotless um, large commercial aircraft. I think we'll see a, a move to single pilot operated aircraft where the pilot is concentrating much more on what you might call um, mission management, but that the aircraft is doing the flying. So today in the cockpit of an aircraft, you have a pilot flying and you have a pilot monitoring. As we go forward, the, the pilot flying will become the, the aeroplane and the pilot monitoring will, 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 st will still be there. So, I mean, it will be a gradual transition, but um, I think we'll see the same acceptance that we've seen in previous generations, especially when we start to demonstrate that there's a safety benefit that comes from it. So would you say within the next, say, 100, 100 years from today that we will see a fully autonomous commercial flight? I think we will see um, single pilot operated aircraft in the next 10 to 15 years. And that seems that that would benefit everybody because with the pilot shortage that the commercial flights can continue to operate with that. Yeah. So this is one of the drivers. My figures are a little bit out of date now with the COVID crisis. But before the COVID crisis, we were facing a situation where um, in the next 20 years, we would need to train 600,000 new commercial pilots, which is more than double the number of commercial pilots that we've trained since the since the beginning of the jet age. And we really don't know how to do that sustainably. So one of the drivers is, is certainly that is is facing the the, the pilot shortage, um, which maybe has been pushed back a couple of years with the uh, with with the, the effect on growth of, of the COVID crisis. But uh, that that's one of the drivers as well is to ensure that we have enough well-trained pilots to operate the aircraft and operate it safely. As we accelerate towards autonomous flights, how is Project Wayfinder fitting into all this? So, yeah, Project Pro, Project Wayfinder is one of the what I would call the building bricks for our um, our roadmap towards single pilot operation of aircraft in the future. As I said, it's 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 really focused very heavily on developing the uh, the vision based systems which will replace the need for the pilot to you know be looking out of the window and, and, and navigating the aircraft either either on the ground or in the air. Um, visually. But there are a number of other the bricks that we need to have in place that will make single pilot operation both viable and safe that are that are being developed in other parts of the industry. So, you know, the cockpit of a single pilot operated aeroplane will look different from one that's designed for two pilots. The human machine interface, you know, is is very, very important. That's something we've learned from previous changes. So there are there are teams working on the human machine interface, and we'll need to have you know autopilots which are much more robust, which you know can cope with uh, with with more or less anything. So there are, there are a number of other building blocks, but the one Wayfinder is fo is focusing on is is if you like replacing the uh, the vision function of the of the pilot, not only for 
um, navigating the aircraft, but also, for example, for sense and avoid. You know, so if the aircraft encounters an obstacle, which could be a drone, it could be another another aircraft, then uh, the systems will have to be able to perform um, avoidance maneuvers better than a pilot can do today. Is drone interference still a big problem? I remember uh, when down in San Diego with a military base and the commercial passion, there's all this drone interference that's right there on the Coronado Bay. Is that still a trend that pilots are having to experience and, and run into with drones getting in, in the airspace? It's something that, that, that does happen, but we're we're actually working um, we're actually working on a system to to try and address this problem. You know, as more and more drones start to start to be flown, and as we go towards flying, for example, um, uh, flying taxis or urban air mobility vehicles, they're going to be more and more flying vehicles sharing the uh, sharing the same airspace. So we have a we have a we have a project within Acube which is called Unmanned Traffic Management. It grew from an Acube project that was started called Altiscope and has now has now uh, become a much bigger activity within Airbus on uh, both unmanned traffic management and air traffic management. So we're working on looking at how do we design the next generation of uh, of traffic management system. Which will, which will which will digitally manage and safely manage all of the um, users of controlled airspace. Um, so we are in fact one of the very first uh, companies that are that that have what we call Lance approval from the FAA, which allows a drone operator to fly a drone within controlled airspace. Um, so in order to do that, you need to have approval from a from from, from an operator that's uh, that's qualified, which which we and we're one of the uh, one of the first um, companies that are approved to do that, and we are we we are deploying that today with a with a company called Drone Deploy, who manage thousands of flights per month um, now of um, of drones in and around controlled airspace using um, the technology that, that that that's been developed at Acute. I want to dive into the unmanned. Uh traffic management for a minute. We had David Estrada, um, who is formerly the lawyer for Google X, and now he's a uh, chief legal counsel for Neuro. He was talking about uh, lanes in the sky. We had Mark Moore, who's leading the Uber Elevate strategy, talk about different ways to manage traffic on the podcast. And I would love to get your perspective when we go into the future and there's drones, there's urban air mobility, and there's commercial air traffic. How is this all going to be managed? Is this kind of where you're going with the unmanned traffic management to take all these flying aircraft to, to manage it so a city can manage their air pollution, they can manage the traffic to ensure safety. Is that kind of where you're going with this? We're trying to look at how first, how we modernize the uh, the, the air traffic management system that we have today, which is currently, uh, even for large aircraft, is pretty inefficient. Even on short haul operations, for example, we, we know that we're burning around 10% more fuel and creating 10% more CO2 than we need to because of the inefficiencies of the traffic management system. And as the air, as the airspace becomes more congested, that, that, that will obviously become more and more of a challenge. So through the, through this unmanned traffic management um, project, we are starting to look at what, what are the, what are the optimum ways of, of controlling all of the different types of uh, of users. So, as you say, there's the, there are approaches from um, a very structured approach 
as we have today, where you're given a flight plan and you fly to a very specific uh, flight plan. Um, but and there are there are some people looking at a completely unstructured approach, where, for example, when birds fly around in an area, they they don't crash into each other, but and they don't have any air traffic management either. But they rely on um, very sophisticated sense and avoid systems, um, which which make it work. So really, this is this is the sort of thing we're working on. Where is where is the right balance between allowing vehicles to operate within controlled airspace, but with a degree of a degree of freedom, or to you know to to uh, to operate with a, a certain level of control. So. That's really one of the, the big questions today. Where, where is the right balance between those two extremes? It's a very good problem to solve and it's important to solve. And Airbus's A-Cube's public state of mission is to build the future now. So you're doing the, um, the, the traffic management system. I'm really curious, what's some of the other cool little things that you're working on that's going to go on to completely change mobility? I think the work we did on our Vahana project, which was um, a 900 kilo um, uh, flying taxi that was able to fly at 100 knots for, for 50 kilometers, so a 20 minute flight. You know, that was something which which really demonstrated um, what is possible with the advances in technology uh, that exist today and that are continuing to, to develop. And I think the other the other one is 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 clearly the work we're doing on um, on autonomy. You know, making our vehicles more autonomous is one of the biggest contributions we're going to have to uh, to the future of future of flight. And will that same autonomy for the future of flight will that be in urban air mobility as well as we cur- uh, talked about commercial? Will it go on both sectors? Yes. In fact, the Wayfinder project was born from some of the autonomy work we were doing on um, on urban air taxis uh, and and now has shifted more towards the applications on uh, on, on large commercial aircraft because that's a, the, the short to medium term priority but it's still intended that we would have a, a generically uh, a system which is capable of flying autonomously from anything from a small drone right up to a, a large commercial aircraft obviously the uh, the details and the hardware that you will have on board will be will, will be different, but the, the the idea is to is to have a basic system which is coherent across the whole range of, of types of uh, vehicles. And I've had the unique uh, opportunity to go when a plane was completely uh, torn down, and I got to go into the belly, and I didn't realize how many wires and hardware that was in there. So that was really. Um, impressive from a hardware perspective. From a software perspective, what role is AI in machine learning playing to make this and to make this all reality? AI in machine learning is absolutely crucial to auto- autonomy. Uh, you know, uh, um, an autonomous system has to learn how to fly, just just like a pilot has to learn how to fly. Um, you know, we train a pilot to fly by exposing the pilot exposing him to various um, situations that, that, that he has to deal with. And with um, machine learning, we have to do the same. We have to train algorithms to respond um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a correct and predictable way to a whole variety of, of, of situations. So one of the challenges we face today is that in order to do that, we also need to collect vast quantities of data. We're talking about 
petabytes of, of data that we need to that we need to collect. So, you know, hundreds of thousands or even millions of scenarios that the machine learning algorithms will have will have to be trained on so that we are sure that in real life the aircraft can cope with everything any situation that it will that it will see and in fact that's this is the this is the challenge that the uh, automotive industry have found is slowing down the development and deployment of autonomous cars is that the the, the uh, environment that the car operates in is so complex the human brain is very good at interpreting complex situations even ones that it's never seen before whereas the uh, machine learning algorithms you know need to be trained so i mean we 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 think we're making a lot of progress and there are less there are probably less variables in the sky than there are on the ground so maybe we'll get there first who knows who knows and as we and i think you probably will will get there first and and as we look to wrap up this conversation i would love your your thoughts on what does the future of commercial aviation look like in the next 10 to 15 years? And I'd like to also know, what is the future of urban air mobility look like in the next 10 to 15 years? The future of um, commercial aviation. I mean, Airbus is extremely conscious about climate change and, um, you know, our responsibility is for, for, to society and to future generations. So a lot of our uh, our effort is now focused on looking at um, uh, the next generation of aircraft, which will be much, 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 much lower in terms of emissions. And ultimately, with the ultimate ultimate goal of building zero emissions aircraft. So um, I think that's the that's the sort of flight path that we're on now is how do we get to aircraft that have zero impact on the climate? Whether that be because they they, they consume less energy, um, whether that's because they they use a, a, a completely renewable energy propulsion system, or that they use um, synthetic fuels, for example, that have been made from carbon extracted from the uh, from the environment. So that's I think that's the that's the big challenge that aviation faces in in the next in the next uh, you know the next 10 10 to 20 years in terms of urban air mobility it's something that's maybe will maybe maybe be changed by what we what we've just gone through or what we're going through with this covid crisis um you know will will people be living in um concentrated in in big cities um in in the future I think there'll, 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 there will always be a demand for, um, uh, you know, the ability to fly uh, short, shortest distances in, in congested airspace. But it's really not clear if the levels of congestion that we were dealing with, you know, a year ago are going to be there for the future. So I think we still believe that that is an industry that we want to uh, that we want to to play in. We've been in the helicopter industry for 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 many many years, and a helicopter is you know is an urban air mobility vehicle. The, the reason it's not used for that purpose is because it's expensive to operate, it's noisy, um, you know, so which are all things that the next generation of vehicles will solve. 
but the I think the big question for that industry is now how quickly will the will the demand develop and become uh, and make a viable business case for, for for the the companies that are able to produce and and operate those types of vehicles. You're right about that. It'll be interesting to see if, um, say, 150, 200 miles from an urban environment, if somebody decides to move their family out there from for more space, if they have to go in the office once a week, if they have a, a corporate pass where they're able to take that urban air mobility into this into this city once a week. And you're 100% right about the zero emission aircraft trend. That's a trend that we've explored on the on the podcast many times. And Mark, we've spoken about a lot of wonderful innovations that A-Cube's uh, been doing, but we've been really narrow focused. I'd like to take it broader. Can you talk about some of the other cool innovations going on inside of A-Cube that we might not have touched on yet? Yeah, so A-Cube is working on a few other cool projects. So, you know, we've mentioned the work we're doing on um, uh, on vision-based systems for, for, for Wayfinder. We, we've mentioned what we've been doing on unmanned traffic management. We have a project which we call Adam Advanced Digital Manufacturing, and we're looking we're looking at applying um, modern techniques and uh, and approaches and 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 in certain cases um, machine learning to the uh, manufacturing techniques that we use to produce our planes. So how do we produce uh, produce them more efficiently and in a in, in a much quicker manner? We also have a project running looking at um, aerial imagery so um, you know as you know today most aerial imagery that you you get today is provided by uh, by satellites which is uh, very expensive um, and we're looking at a project which is looking at, at ways of dramatically reducing the cost of aerial imagery that might be used by um, um, companies to manage um, oil and gas fields or uh, agriculture or whatever so there's lots of lots of interesting stuff going on. Is the aerial imagery is that you're connecting it to a drone? Are you building the hardware or the the software? Or how are you going about the aerial imagery? We're looking at exploiting the advantage we have of having ten thousand aircraft flying around the world and looking at whether we can exploit those flying platforms to collect aerial imagery. Oh, so basic when when a plane goes in for a retrofit to put the satellite the Viasat or the high speed internet of the Panasonic system where they put it on they retrofit it. You're looking to possibly retrofit other planes with the aerial imagery systems that a an oil and gas or an agriculture or say a national park that needs to be properly mapped could kind of do something similar to that. Yeah, so something like that. Yeah, it's a, it's one of the, one of the projects that's in its very early stages. So uh, that's. Um... That's something you know. It's these type of projects take time to develop and and come to a a mature idea. But that's what we're looking. That's the sort of things we've been looking at. And then when the projects get mature, do they graduate to Airbus corporate? Yeah. So that's. I mean, that's that's obviously our goal is that uh, as as we build a project, we try and find um, a sponsor, if you like, or a customer within the Airbus organization as as early as possible within the project's life. Um, because that then makes the transition easier. Because at some point, these projects have to, um, yeah, they have to be incorporated into aircraft products or Airbus products, and that's not something we do at Acubed. You know, we're not we're not a product organization. We 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 develop technology, and then we have to um, we have to hand off that technology to organizations which um, design and build products. And in fact, the handover 
the handover part of the, uh, of the of the project has proved one of the most difficult parts of uh, you know corporate innovation, and I think that's something you'll you'll hear from any corporate innovation centre. It's it's one of the more difficult parts. And there's a long history of that going back to AT and T's Bell Labs and the, and the corporate handoff there and some of the stuff that's been publicly innovated inside of Honeywell. So you're 100 percent right. Well, we wish you luck. And this is the last uh, question for you. If somebody's really interested in urban air mobility, interested in Airbus and A-Cubed and all the innovations, that have, what would be the one piece of advice that you would give them if they wanted to go down that career and completely innovate around aerospace? The, the basic advice would be to study STEM subjects and uh, you know gain an education in a technical education. Um, whether that be in uh, engineering or, or, or software. I think more and more people who want to make a difference in this industry need to have a passion for what they, what they do. They need, to have, um, they need to have a real drive to, uh, to want to make a difference, you know, to come up and articulate you know, the crazy ideas. What are, what are the crazy ideas that, 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 that people may have that, that, that could change the future of uh, of aviation as we as we see it today i would encourage people not to be you know not to be shy but i think it's incumbent on all of us rather than rather than just for example protesting against um, aviation as we've seen maybe in you know in the recent past is okay but what are the solutions let's let's look at how do we solve this problem um how do we we i think we all we, we all recognize that um, aviation makes a huge contribution to the global economy. Um, it's broadened the minds of, um, of all of our, uh, especially the younger generation, you know, who have been exposed to uh, the, the, the rest of the world. And I don't think we want to go backwards in, in, in time in terms of, uh, you know, no longer traveling. But the question is now, how do we develop aviation so that it can continue, but to continue um, without um, damaging the environment. And as we've heard on, on this podcast, Airbus is clearly committed to the environment of doing uh, carbon neutral innovations. And Airbus is clearly innovating while focusing on safety and focused on autonomy. So, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the SAE podcast and sharing your wonderful insights around all things aerospace and Airbus. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to SAE's Tomorrow Today podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate it, share your feedback, we love comments, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information on SAE and SAE podcasts, be sure to visit sae.org forward slash podcast and follow SAE on social media at SAEINTL on Twitter and Instagram and at SAE International on Facebook and LinkedIn. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.